0: What's your name? Jeff Fletcher. What's your occupation? Baseball writer. How long have you been covering baseball? 25 years. What's the name of your new book? Showtime, the
1: inside story of Shohei Otani and the greatest baseball season ever played.
0: Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is longtime baseball reporter Jeff Fletcher. Once upon a time, we used to sit next to each other in the press box when covering the San Francisco Giants, plus many other places over my 10 years as a newspaper reporter Now, Fletch is still going strong. He covers the Angels down south in Southern California, and now he's a new author. We're going to talk about the most unique baseball player of our lifetime, the unicorn, Shohei Otani, plus who knows what else. My good friend and author Jeff Fletcher is next on Life Around the (laughs) Scenes. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Fletch, good to see you via Zoom. Only fitting that you're in Oakland as we record this podcast.
1: Yeah, our old stomping grounds. It's cool to be back here.
0: All right, so let's just dive right into this. You wrote this book about Shohei Otani, and um, I love talking to authors. Their books are hard to write, quite an accomplishment. It, it takes a lot of time and um, mental fortitude. <laughs> Tell me why you wanted to do this and why Shohei Ohtani, even though this is going to be an obvious question, but why this book?
1: It is an obvious question because Shohei Ohtani did something that nobody had done in a hundred years. And, uh, he pretty much came to me, you know, I was already there covering the angels and Shohei Ohtani dropped in front of me and did this. And I'm, um, uh, you know, people talked about, oh, this is a season people are going to write books about. And I'm like, well, I guess if people are going to do it, I should probably be that person. Cause I'm sitting here every day seeing it. Uh, I kind of, uh, like to tell people that I've seen more of Shoei Ohtani than any other journalist, American journalist, because I'm the only one who's covered the angels for his whole time. So it just is like a natural that if somebody's going to do an Ohtani book. It should be me. So that's, that also made it actually not as difficult a project as many people, many people's books are because I didn't really have to like research as much because I'd already written the book in 500 installments basically <laughs> over the previous four years. So it was just a matter of, uh, going back through that material and putting it in a different format. And then there's about another probably 25 to 40% of the book that's new stuff. But uh, but a lot of it is just stuff that I, that I already
0: knew. But hopefully the readers, it's still going to be new for the readers. It's definitely going to be new for me. So when, when it comes to a book like this, and especially with your day-to-day job covering him, how much access to Otani, how much access to his interpreter, how much access to just key people in order to get some of that new material?
1: Unfortunately, Otani pretty much felt like he'd already given me enough just in the, uh, you know, that I talked to him, like I said, for my day job, you know, hundreds of times and uh, I'd gotten a lot from him. And uh, so I couldn't really get any extra from him, but I did already talk to his agent. I talked a lot to Billy Epler, who was the general manager, his general manager at the time, you know, some of his teammates in Japan, um, just lots of his teammates with the Angels other people that worked around the angels, so there's a lot just a lot of people you know in his circle that I got additional information from. But uh, as for what Otani had to say, it's you know it's basically what he had said to me as during my daily coverage of the angels.
0: yeah, and and a lot of times really with books like this, it's just as much what other people have to say about him. you know um, as I was reading your book, I was kind of bouncing around in the chapters that intrigued me the most and and I always think it's significant when you pick up the phone and you call someone or you introduce yourself in person and you tell them, Hey, I'm writing about Shohei Ohtani, just what their reaction is. And, you know, so whether it's Rick Ain Keel or whether it's, you know, like his teammates that are around him every day, like just what type of reaction do you get when you tell people I'm writing about Shohei Ohtani?
1: Yeah, everybody, there's no shortage of people in uh, awe of Shohei Ohtani. And that is what you really, what I like to convey to people is just <clears throat> the people that are in baseball really appreciate how amazing he is even more than we do, because, you know, a lot of us regular folks are like, oh, geez, you know, there's lots of guys, you know, when I was in high school I pitched and I hit and it's like, you know, whatever, but to do it in the major leagues, it's just such a different level that that they just find so incredible. And I think one, like just a little example of this, that the book is full of is like, uh, right before the 2018 season, his first season in the major leagues, he'd been terrible in spring training as a pitcher and a hitter. And literally like two days before the season, the, uh, the hitting coach said to him, said, why don't you just stop with the leg kick? Cause it's, you know, messing up your timing, just like, stop it. And Otani just like that, snapped his finger, stopped it. And all of a sudden was good. And Ian Kinsler said, I take batting practice for hours every single day. And if I move my hands a quarter of an inch, it feels like crazy weird. And it takes me a week to, to get used to. And this guy took like a major component of his swing and just changed it to the drop of a hat and was like, Oh, this is great. Let's go. And so I think that's the sort of thing that, that we don't appreciate on our own. But if you talk to other major league baseball players, they really tell you just how ridiculously insanely talented this guy is.
0: I can tell you on a micro level, there's been number of players for the Albuquerque isotopes who are two way guys in college. And I think this is a good topic that I get to do with them for my pregame interview that hopefully makes it better for the audience as well. Like we have a pitcher named Brandon gold. He was at Georgia tech and he played infield and he, you know, he briefly did both when he was in college and we've had other guys who did both in college. And I'll use the example of, you know, knowing what it was like for you in college, can you fathom what it would be like doing this as a professional when you watch what Shohei Ohtani does. And overwhelmingly, the first response is, well, I can't even put myself in the same sentence or the same paragraph as Shohei Ohtani. And then they just express the complete awe that he's able to do one of them so well, let alone do them both. And and, and I think that my appreciation for Shohei became even more when I asked again. Brandon Gold or Jordan Patterson or some of these other people that you don't know, Fletch, and most of my audience doesn't know. But these were guys who did both in college, and they just can't comprehend what Shohei does as a professional.
1: Yeah, it's It's pretty uh, insanely crazy. I remember going around at the All-Star Game, and uh, there were a bunch of guys there, you know, like uh, Brandon Woodruff, who were, you know, good hitter, for a pitcher, that kind of thing, and, and other guys who, like Joey Gallo, had been, you know, scouted as a pitcher, too, when he was in high school. You ask all those guys, like, did you think that you could... What did you think about trying to do two-way? And they're like, no chance. It's like, too hard. Forget it. You can't do it. And, uh, you know, not to spoil the ending of the book, but there's a big discussion there about if there's going to be more two-way players. And, you know, I think the answer is just no. (laughs) Because it's it's still too hard. And uh, even if you think you want to do it, it's just like the people that have that talent level just don't exist. And uh, it's just uh, that's why I think it's just even more incredible. Thinking.
0: That was one of my favorite chapters. Actually, I skipped to that because I mean, shoot, just because the isotopes play the Salt like Bees. I mean, I remember Jared Walsh and there was somebody else um, who was trying to do both, uh, I think, 2018 or 2019 because of Otani and I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm excited to see like what these guys could do. And they barely pitched. And like, <laughs> well, this guy really isn't much of a two way player if, if he's yeah. if he's not pitching. And I, I love the stuff with Rick and Keel, which I hope you don't mind sharing more about how one might develop faster than the other and how that impacts your chances of doing both.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically the biggest problem is that if you just lived in this, you know, fantasy world where you could just take whatever a person's innate skill was and just put that in the oven and let it grow until it's done, then there might be players out there who have the talent to do both. Because you look at Rick Ankeel, he had the talent to be a major league pitcher and a major league hitter. But those talents did not develop at the same time. And the St. Louis Cardinals said, sorry, you're a lot closer to being a pitcher, so we're ready for you to be a pitcher right now. Forget being a hitter. You're not going to get that chance. And uh, you just Otani, in a sense, was lucky because he was in Japan when he was going through that Where his skills were not really even, he wasn't as good a hitter initially. But the the his team in Japan, basically, in order to keep him from going to, you know, the United States right out of high school, they said, "Stay here. We'll let you be a two way player," and that was the promise they made to him. And he was a big fan attraction, so they were willing to to let him go through being not a very good hitter and just keep doing it because that was the promise they made to him. Whereas if a player starts in major leagues in a major league organization and one of his skills is behind they're just going to say forget it you know we're not going to wait we're not going to have you in the minor leagues trying to learn how to hit when you're already ready to be a pitcher in the major leagues right now so uh it just isn't going to happen even if that player might eventually have the skills to do it it just if the skills aren't at the same level they'll never get that chance
0: that's interesting about Shohei's skill levels in Japan, because that's actually something I did not know at all. How long did it take before his hitting caught up to his pitching when he was in Japan?
1: Uh, it was really his fourth season in Japan. He played five years there. His fourth season in Japan was the one where it all came together, and he was a good hitter and a good pitcher, and that's when sort of the legend of Otani grew. His first few years, it was like, oh, this is cool. He's He's trying to hit, and he's trying to pitch. And, you know, there were some years he got hurt, and some years he was good at one, and Uh, It just wasn't, it just didn't all click much like actually in the major leagues where it didn't really click for a few years, but uh, it was his fourth year when finally he was, you know, he hit over 300 and hit a bunch of homers and, you know, ERA in the threes and just everything went together and he was the MVP. And that was the year really, uh, that was the 2016 season when everybody was like, oh my God, this is the greatest player in the world. And when's he going to come to the major leagues? So that was kind of when it started.
0: Before we get into some of the stuff in the major leagues, it also occurred to me about how college baseball has the chance to do this, though, because they're there for three years. And because of the college baseball schedule, let's say you are better advanced as as a pitcher. Um, So you get used to you're the Friday night starter and then they can start you in the Tuesday midweek game, or they often do a lot of inter squad games on Wednesdays and Thursdays so that you can get better at hitting or vice versa. Maybe your pitching isn't there yet. So you're a position player during the four games of the week that you play and they might use you for an inning or two in this inter squad game on Wednesday or Thursday in order to help develop you. And so that's where I think that college baseball does have a chance but at the same time, those coaches aren't thinking about developing players. I mean, yeah, they'd like to. They like to be able to say we've had X number of players go on and play pro ball. But really, they're trying to win. <laughs> so yeah. they're, you know, that that's their number one concern is trying to win. What can I do right now?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it does happen in college baseball. They have an award for it. They have the yeah. John Olerud Award. So obviously, it's it's already more common in college baseball than in professional baseball. So in that sense, I don't think anything is going to change. So what you want it to get is like even more, more common for it to to have more guys to have a chance to develop it. And, you know, that's maybe asking too much.
0: So when it comes to Shohei coming to the United States, and his first year was good. I mean, sure, he was the rookie of the year. And then the next two years were a bunch of injuries, and Shohei would be the first one to say that he was not very good. Describe the different levels of conversations that led to, let's just take the reins off him and let him just be an athlete. Uh,
1: I think it it came from a few things first of all they're uh, as well-intentioned as they were to put all these restrictions on him and and all that it was in order to keep him healthy and make him the most productive and it didn't work in either count uh he got hurt a bunch of times and he was not a very good hitter at times so i think they got to year four and they said you know what we're we're getting to where we got nothing to lose uh he's going to start getting expensive it's not an experiment anymore so let's just let him go. It was actually, uh, yeah, he was still, oh yeah, he was going to, it was his first arbitration year. So it was like 3 million bucks, 3.5 million bucks. He was going to make it 2021. So that was kind of the last year when you could really, let's just see what we got. And a uh, combination of that is I think the Angels new general manager, Perry Manassian, uh, the backstory on him is that his dad was the visiting clubhouse, well, home, home clubhouse, and then visiting clubhouse manager with the, uh, or it was the other way around, with the Texas Rangers. But anyway, young Perry from eight years old grew up like literally living in a baseball clubhouse, playing with Bo Jackson and wrestling around with Ken Griffey Jr. And then eventually with the Rangers with Michael Young and, you know, all these guys, he literally lived in the clubhouse. So he knew how players think. At a different level than other executives, and he really appreciated the fact that it is hard to get to the major leagues, and you can't you you need to let the players be what they feel like they should be because it is it's not an easy thing to do. And so he didn't want to like put limitations on players and add him to Joe Madden, who is a very obviously outside the box thinker, and Joe Madden doesn't like obviously following the rules of the quote unquote, the book. And he wanted to, you know, the first time we talked to Madden about Otani, before he even started managing him, he said, well, why can't he pitch and hit uh, on the same day? You know, this was in the winter meetings before the 2020 season, when we thought there was going to be a regular 2020 season. Uh, he's like, why can't he pitch and hit in the same day? You know, it'd be great. And, and Billy Epler was the GM was like, whoa, whoa, let's hold on. Let's He hasn't done that before. And, da, da, da. and, the, and Madden was like, oh, you know, I guess whatever. He, he's the boss. I'll go along with what he says but then the next year comes along 2021 and Billy Epler's not there. It's it's Madden and Perry running the show. And plus the organization feels like they're kind of getting to a, uh inflection point on Otani and they just, all the parties got together and said, look, what's worked, what we've tried hasn't worked. Let's just forget all that. Let's ask Otani, what do you think? And uh, let's do what he thinks. And if it doesn't work, you know, we haven't lost anything. And obviously it did work incredibly. So, uh, I think that was a, a big change for them.
0: When, when reading that chapter and listening to you speak right now, what occurred to me is, okay, so like what's the next step of professional baseball teams letting athletes be athletes, you know, and once again, all of this well-intentioned pitch counts and, oh, let's give people an extra day rest and let's, you know, let's do all of these things in order to try and keep players healthier. And it doesn't work. Players get more hurt than they ever have. And I know the main reason is because of money and because no one wants to be the person who blows out the elbow of someone who's making $50 million. But it occurred to me of maybe you just let athletes be athletes and go longer and condition them to pitch every four days, the way that they did for 80 years. Um, I I, I don't know. I know that this is a very Pollyanna view, but it made me just think about letting athletes be athletes.
1: Yeah. You know, this is a, I've always thought I have this idea for minor league pitching development, what they should do. And you should probably work on this since you're in minor leagues. All right. I'm taking tell notes them here. Right tell them. So uh, I think the problem is like in the minor leagues, they don't throw that many pitches because they're trying to like take care of them and keep them healthy. So what I would do is all my starting pitchers, whatever pitch count you assigned them for that day, 80, 90, whatever, when they're done, send them to the bullpen for like 20 more which is something they do in spring training when they're, you know, building up if you have a short outing or whatever, but just do it all the time because the problem is uh, like the first time you hit a new high in pitches, you don't want that to be in a game because then that's a high stress pitch and, you know, all things are going on, but you want your arm to learn to throw those extra pitches without the pressure of the game. So uh, you throw in 80 pitches in the game and then you throw 20 more in the bullpen. And the next time when you throw 90 pitches in the game, you've already thrown 90 pitches because you threw those other ones in the bullpen. And so you just kind of can push it out that way. And uh, I think that would be a better way to develop pitchers to throw more pitches. And then you could have that happen more in the major leagues. And we could go back to, you know, where the starter, you could throw 120 pitches and it wasn't like, Oh my God, he's at 95 pitches. Get him out of there. So. Another thing is if you uh, reduce the roster sizes or reduce the number of pitchers you can have on the roster, I think you would that would force you to train your pitchers to to be more efficient with their pitches and to throw more pitches and and I think maybe you'd see less strikeouts then too. So
0: the Astros organization does this thing that I actually really like, and it's something that Tony La Russa and the A's briefly tried in the middle of a season, and the Rockies briefly tried in the middle of a season, and that's where they basically have tandem starters, and so you you pair two guys up. And the idea behind it is between the two of you, you're going to pitch eight innings. You're going to go five and you're going to go three. And then the next time through the rotation, you're going to reverse. You're going to go five and you're going to go three with the idea that most of the time if you're a starting pitcher in the minor leagues, you're probably going to be a reliever at some point in the big leagues. So you need to get used to this anyways. And especially when you first come up, you're probably going to be used out of the bullpen. And so this gets you ready to to do both. And it also is a way of, okay, you threw your 90 pitches five days ago. This time you're going to throw 50 pitches, but they're, but you're going to learn how to pitch in the sixth and seventh and eighth innings with the game on the line. I mean, shoot, I, they got this game Hunter Brown and I've seen him start and go six dominant innings. And I've seen him pitch the seventh, eighth and ninth to get a save. And I'm thinking this is really smart. I actually think more teams should do this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think anything different is uh is good to, to try to get, guys out of what we're in right now because it's just uh, – this is really we're, – we're going off on a big tangent here, but I like it. This is fun. I just, I just think there's the game has gotten too many, like, starters going out too soon and then four relievers coming in and throwing 97 miles an hour and striking everybody out, and then that's it. I just – I don't like that. I, I'd rather see starters pitch deeper and more balls in play and, you know, all that kind of stuff.
0: I've got a bunch of other like non-Shohei Otani topics for us as well because I like okay. talking baseball with you because we did this all the time during spring training and during games. But let me, let me continue with Shohei. Um, so the question when he first came to the States is a question that's really never going to go away, and that is what happens if he does have to focus on one at some point? So whether that's next year or when he becomes a free agent or whether that's three years from now, Um, knowing what we know now that he was at his best when he did both. When does, um, when push comes to shove, what's going to be the determining factor for if he does have to give up one?
1: That is an excellent question. Excellent question, Sushi. Um, I think he's better as a pitcher because he's never really been bad as a pitcher in the major leagues for any extended period. He had like two bad starts in a row once and that's it. He's never had like a bad month. As a hitter, he has. He's had a bad month. He's gone, you know, where he strikes out too much. He puts the ball on the ground too much, pulls the ball too much. But as a pitcher, he's only, his only problem has been injury. So he's better as a pitcher. That being said, he has had injuries, significant injuries as a pitcher. And any pitcher is probably more uh, at risk of injuries than any hitter. So if you ask me, like, which one is more likely to be the one he ends up at long-term when he can't do two-way anymore... It could be either because he could get hurt as a pitcher and that could force him to be a hitter or he could just struggle too much as a hitter and that could force him to be a pitcher. So uh, if you force me to pick one, I would say probably would be pitching. But, uh, and we've also, we've also never seen him only pitch. We've only seen him only hit. And when he only hit, he was not as good a hitter as when he was a hitter and a pitcher. And I think part of that was because he just didn't, feel like complete so to speak and uh, also because he was only a hitter as a dh he really had nothing to do but go in the cage and swing his you know butt off all the time and i think the the hitting coach said that wasn't really great for him because you know when he got in a slump it just got worse because he just took a million swings so if he ever did get to that point where he was not pitching anymore he would have to play a position you know he'd play outfield or first base or something like that just to keep him from going crazy just spending every minute in the cage swing so
0: the the chapter about what would have happened if a national if he had signed with a national league team this was obviously before the universal dh was interesting with the idea of well maybe he would be a closer And, and that also made me think about long term you know there's plenty of starters who later become relief pitchers and closers because they have to and um you know i mean shoot this goes back to high school or college when the first baseman goes to the mound in the ninth inning or something after hitting. And so I think that that's an intriguing thing. I hope that's not for a long time from now, but I think that's an intriguing concept for the future.
1: Everybody asks about that, you know, especially when he was getting hurt more as a pitcher, people all wanted to, well, just make him the closer because you won't get hurt if he's only pitching one inning. First of all, I think is ludicrous because, you know, you're when you're a starter, you have a schedule and you know exactly when you're going to pitch and you can have your workout routine as a reliever. It's just like, quick, fired up, you're going to go in and pitch in the next 10 minutes, and you don't know when that's going to be. It could be three days in a row and whatever. So I think that, first of all, doesn't necessarily keep him healthier. And second of all, I just don't understand how, if you're in the game at another position, how do you warm up? You know, when how are you going to get ready to pitch? You know, what if you have to bat in the top of the ninth and you hit a double and you're standing there at second? And it's like, when were you going to warm up to come pitch in the bottom of the ninth? So, I mean, he, he did it in Japan a couple times. I don't think that it would be a really comfortable thing for him to do in the major leagues regularly, just because it's, you know, he's got a quite a routine about how he pitches. And that was another thing, you know, we had this thought at the all-star game, you know, about him pitching and hitting in the all-star game. And in 2021, he started, which was perfect because he, he was whole pitching warm up before the game and then he comes and he hits and then he goes and pitches and it's just like a regular game. But then this year, uh, you know, we weren't sure he was going to start and we thought, well, could he pitch still if he's not the starter? And we were kind of like, well, no, that would really be weird and difficult for him because when, you know, when's he going to warm up? I guess if, if that's what it has to be at some point, you know, five years down the road, he would probably figure it out. But I just think it would be really less than optimal for him to, to try to do something like that
0: the chapter on him going to driveline was interesting to me, but I was actually even more interested about the stuff about Babe Ruth. Um, I didn't realize
1: really. Cause I thought that was the least interesting part of the book. So I'm really,
0: gonna... <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, like I always knew that Babe Ruth had this reputation, you know, for being, you know, the, the wild man on town and eating and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't realize how much he really had to get into shape about how that there was this significant change from, okay, he was great. And now his weight and his lifestyle is affecting him. And then he got even greater. And I'm curious, like how you even like, is that like old like magazines or on newspapers.com where you were able to like get the specific details on Babe Ruth changing his, his workout?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's in there just basically because it was like, just like Otani had this inflection point in his career where what he did in the winter really affected what happened. Babe Ruth had this too, that I think a lot of people didn't know about that he was, looked like he was kind of on the way out. And people were like, oh, so much for Babe Ruth. It was a great story while it lasted, but now he's too fat and can't play anymore. And then he did this, and and his best years were still ahead of him when this happened. Uh, But anyway, that's just mostly like other books that people had written on Babe Ruth that most of that research came from. I I put in a call to Babe Ruth, but he didn't (laughs) answer. So, uh, yeah. But that was all new information to me. I didn't know about any of that stuff before starting the book
0: yeah and the other thing about babe too is that once he got a taste of hitting he he didn't want anything to do with pitching anymore
1: yeah that is another i think a giant misconception about babe ruth as a two-way player he did not want to be a two-way player he fought it like once he could hit it was like no i don't want to pitch anymore and he had a little fit with the team and like left the team for a few days to like with he faked some injury because he was mad that they still wanted him to pitch and basically, in those two years that he was a two-way player, he pitched like half of the time. So, uh, I mean, we look at the stats and we go, oh, look, he started, you know, what is it, like 19 games or something like that. But back then, pitchers were starting 40 games. So when you start 19, that's you're really only a half-time starting pitcher. So uh, he wanted nothing to do with pitching anymore. And then as soon as he got to the Yankees, that was it. He basically never pitched again.
0: Let's start to wrap up the discussion about Shohei Otani. Uh, first of all, where can people get this book?
1: Uh, I'd say Amazon is probably the easiest way. If you don't like Amazon, you can go to any other online bookseller, uh, bookshop, uh, indie books, barnesandnoble.com. And, uh, you know, it is in bookstores too, but that's a little hit and miss about which bookstores actually have it. But, uh, you know, online is probably the best way to get it.
0: I also like to ask this question of authors where was your go-to spot where you spent the most amount of time writing? Describe the scene of where you did most of your actual writing.
1: There wasn't really one place. I just kind of wrote it wherever I was. I had a I have a little reclining chair in my uh, apartment that I like to use. It kicks the feet up, but uh, I don't. I don't have a good story for you on that one, Sushi. Sorry. Oh,
0: the guy who wrote <laughs> the guy who wrote the the movie uh, Major League. He wrote it um, at LAX. He would go there. But not go through security, but he wrote it at LAX because he thought there was just enough noise in the background that because he didn't like the quiet. So he wrote it at LAX. Okay. So now you know for your next book. Uh, Um, That's
1: what what I'll do for my next one.
0: When it does come time to do your next book, what did you learn about the book writing process this time that you wish you had known when you started it?
1: Here's a little thing. If people read the book very carefully, like when you read a newspaper story or like an article, there's sort of a summing up of what the whole article is going to be about at the beginning. And then you kind of go back into the whole chronology. And if you read at the beginning, like some of the chapters are like that, they kind of tell you like this whole chapter is going to be about this. And here's what the whole thing is going to be. And now we'll go back to the beginning and tell the story. And then I was actually talking to John Shea, who's an old friend of uh, both of ours, and he's written a bunch of books. And I was talking to him about it. And I kind of realized, you know, this is a book. This is not an article you don't really necessarily have to like lock people in because they've already bought the thing and they're going to, you know, read it. And uh, so I kind of changed and the sort of midway through the book, uh, I stopped doing that. And uh, I don't know if people will notice or not, but uh, so then the, the later chapters just sort of start and just tell a story in order without like as many teasers to what's going to happen at the end.
0: So you went from a baseball beat writer to an author within the context of your first book.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, it's definitely is a first-time book. There's a lot of things I would do differently, but uh, I still think it came out okay.
0: I like what I've read so far. I've read about almost half of it, and, and I like it. Um, since I've bounced around, I have not noticed that. But when I read the rest of it, I will notice that. Um, what else about the book should people know that I've not asked you about?
1: Um, I just think that it's, uh, it's a pretty comprehensive look at his baseball career and I think that a lot of people don't know a lot of the stuff because they think that he just sort of dropped from the sky and became this great two-way player and you know people don't know what the challenges were like to get him there because obviously his first three years in the major leagues you know he did it for two months at the beginning but then it just didn't happen again and I I don't think that a lot of people really know how did he become great again when I thought he was washed up I thought he wasn't going to be able to do it So I I think what I want people to get from this book is this is how it happened. This is what changed to make him go from being this big disappointment that he was in 19 and 20 to being the greatest thing ever in 21.
0: All right, Fletch, before we talk about non-Shohei Otani topics, I want to discuss Barry Bonds because you and I literally sat right next to each other for four years as we watched Barry Bonds do things that no one else has ever done before. And I wrote a book about his 2001 season when he hit 73 home runs. And when I went across the Bay to cover the A's, you continued to to cover Barry for a very long time. These are two different players, and that Barry didn't pitch, obviously, but both of them, I think we can say, they did things that no one has ever done before, and I doubt that anyone will ever do again. What is your perspective on the Barry Bonds-Shohei Otani comparison? Well, first
1: of all, I feel very fortunate to have seen both of those seasons. They're the 2021 Ohtani season and the 2001 Barry Bonds season were both incredible and then Barry Bonds had a, a few more of them where he just did like ridiculous stuff and you have you go back a, <clears throat> onto baseball reference and you look at like his OPS for those years was like 1300 and you know he had like 110 intentional walks like 230 walks and all this stuff that's just like so out of this world it's crazy and so f- for me to have seen both of those things that and Shohei Ohtani I feel very fortunate but uh, they are both crazy, but but still very different. And actually, the title of the uh, the book is, you know, "Calls Otani Season: The Greatest Baseball Season Ever Played." And people might say, "Well, how can you say that when you saw Barry Bonds do this, you know, fourteen hundred OPS stuff?" And uh, and it's obviously just because Barry Bonds didn't pitch. So uh, you know, what Barry did was incredible, and insanely at a high level, but it was still at a high level of something that had already been done. He was basically doing the same job that every other corner, outfielder, middle of the order hitter had done before. He just did it at a much higher level. So Otani did stuff that nobody had ever done before. And uh so that's why I gave Otani the nod on that. But it's still both times watching both, I did have to like remind myself how historic it was what you're seeing and how just off the charts both seasons were.
0: The thing that, that sticks to me the most about my four years covering Barry is that when you'd go on the road, it was, it was like the Beatles because especially because Barry was so unpopular. It was like, so it was like the Beatles, but people booing him, but the attendance, I mean, I remember we went to Pittsburgh and someone paid for a plane to fly around with a sign that said, Barry, nice throw Sid you know, like, that's the type of, uh, <laughs> of energy that people put toward Barry Bonds. How would you compare when, when Otani goes on the road and the atmosphere and the bump in attendance that, we, that you see?
1: Well, there was definitely a bump in attendance last year, uh, wherever he would go. And, uh, you know, the fans wanted to see him do stuff. And uh, there was a few times where he got intentionally walked on the road and the, the home fans booed. That They were intentionally walking him, and uh, I think that, you know, even in, there was kind of a, there wasn't a the thing with Barry where it was, like, cool to not like him, you know, even though, the oh, the thing I remember most with Barry is when he was coming up close to the record, and he would hit a deep fly ball, everybody would cheer because they thought it was a home run, and then when they realized it wasn't, there was like, oh, there was kind of a groan, and then, like, a couple seconds would pass, and they go, oh, wait, we're supposed to cheer for him to get out because we don't like him, and they cheer again. It was always this kind of like up and down. Do you remember that sushi? Yes. I'm i do. not making that up, that. right?
0: I do. I do. Go, remember oh, that. yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. 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 I, I oh. remember that. Uh, I'm going to cut you off because I remember that if he got intentionally walked, the fans say in Houston would boo. And if he struck out, then the fans would really, really cheer like, yes, you know, we, we tried <laughs> to get him out and we struck him out. Yay for us. But then when he yeah. hit all run, yay, we saw history. And so they were super excited by that as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Otani was definitely there wasn't that kind of uh, like he, he did get booed a few times early in his career in uh, Seattle and New York, because those are two of the teams that he spurned basically to pick the Angels. So they didn't like him. Uh, but beyond that, people just pretty much like him wherever he goes. And they obviously don't want to see his team, uh, their team lose. But uh, that's fortunately with the Angels, they they lose a lot. So they get to see Otani do great stuff, and then the Angels still lose. So it's a win for the uh, the home fans in a lot of cases.
0: How is Shohei's relationship with the Japanese media, which then becomes the conduit for how everyone in Japan views him?
1: He tolerates them, uh, but I'm sure that they would love to talk to him a little more often. All of us would love to talk to him more often than we do, but he's got a pretty uh, strict protection from the media by the angels and he pretty much talks when he pitches and that's it uh, unless he does something, you know, if he hits three homers, which he hasn't done yet. Um, but even some of his two homer games, he doesn't talk to us. The Japanese media is not thrilled about that, but I understand they have to have some rules on him. You just can't have everybody walk up to him every day and talk to him in his locker. If he would never get anything else done. But, you know, I think we would all like to see a little more loosening to, where, you know, maybe once a week we talk to him before the game and could ask him some more questions about, you know, bigger picture things and not just what happened in that game. Cause it's awkward to when you you know, you just pitched a game and you're asking him about like uh, do you think you want to do the home run derby in two weeks? You know? <laughs> Cause it's like that's not the kind of question you should be asking after you just pitched. You should be asking about that game. But that's all we got.
0: If Barry Bonds is listening to this podcast, I'll be shocked. I'm sure he is. But uh, hi, Barry. uh, (laughs) I miss you. But if he is, he's probably thinking, why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I just talk once a week? Because that was one of Barry's big things is, why can't you just enjoy the show and then let me go home and do my thing and get ready for tomorrow's game? Now, it's not like Barry fielded a bunch of interview requests. A lot of times you'd walk close to him and he'd just give you the eye that would just say, like, go away. Um, but the other thing, that I, I have a about funny Barry... story
1: about that. Can I interrupt a real yes, funny story real quick? I wrote the story about Barry at one point And, uh, I, it was one of these things where I was just prepared to not have any contribution from Barry because that's how you did it. You wrote the story around him basically, but I had to be able to say in the story, like Barry didn't refuse to comment on it. So I had to at least make the effort to walk up and talk to him. And I walked up to him and I don't know, I caught him in a weird mood. And I said, do you have a few minutes to talk? And he was like, yeah, sure. What do you got? And I was like totally unprepared with questions. I was not at all expecting to do an interview then. So I just kind of had to fake my way through it. But it was just a weird thing.
0: I remember though, once you got Barry going though, it was hard to get him to stop. I'll never forget. that There was this time I was in Cincinnati and I'm talking to him and I'd finished the interview. I'd press stopped on my recorder. I folded up my notepad just kind of giving some small talk before I leave. And he just keeps talking and talking and talking. And like guys are getting dressed and like going out to the field and giving me dirty looks. And I'm like thinking to myself, I know I'm not supposed to be here, but I don't want to be rude because Barry's talking to me. (laughs) It's like 25 minutes before first pitch and he's still talking to me. And I remember going like, "Uh, I I think you got a game and I got to go. And Barry was like, oh yeah, we'll finish this later. We never finished it later, by the way.
1: There there was another time where he was uh, sitting in his recliner there and uh, it was when he was one of the home run chasers. So there was all this national media and he started just kind of like chit chatting with somebody while he was sitting in the recliner, just about like what he was watching on TV. And all of a sudden more people come and there's this big group gathered around him. And it's not even an interview. It's just his like random silly observations on like something on TV. (laughs) And it was just like pointless, nothing, but you couldn't walk away. It's like Barry's talking. Yeah. I, I have to stay. But it was just like ridiculous what was happening. And and people were like afraid to leave. So
0: Yes, you were always afraid to leave because you didn't want to get scooped and you didn't want to miss out on the one time that he was in a good mood and wanted to talk. Yeah. Um, All right. I want to transition to um, another topic that is one of your favorites and one of my favorites. And um, it references Joe Madden and something that he did when he was Angel's manager. And I don't know if I stole this idea from you or you stole it from me or we both stole it from somebody else. But the idea is that every time there is an infield fly rule, you should let the ball drop on purpose because somebody at some point somewhere is going to forget the rule and you are going to get a double play as a result of this. Um, your thoughts on the infield fly rule
1: uh yeah, I actually have said that too, and maybe I did steal it from you, but uh I don't know if that's a madden thing. I think it's just you and I we're ahead of all of baseball in this is that you should just drop it all the time because. You have nothing to lose. And uh, eventually you will find a hitter that doesn't, or a base runner that doesn't know the rules, and you'll get a double play. So it's like a no lose situation.
0: But weren't the Angels doing this in order to get a speedy player off the bases at one point?
1: So that is a different thing. And that is actually Brad Osmus. Okay. That's a Brad Osmus thing, a Brad Osmus invention that uh, he did it when he managed the Tigers, and then he did it when he managed the Angels in 2019. And then, so this is like crazy that you're bringing this up. Just uh, last night, the A's, the Angels are playing the A's in Oakland, and uh, there's a pop-up hit. The A's second baseman lets it drop. They get the force at second, and they replaced one runner with another runner. And I'm like, wow, look at that. And then I go, oh, my God, who's the A's bench coach? Brad Osmus. So it's, uh, it is definitely wherever Brad Osmus goes, that will happen. And I remember talking to him when he managed angels about it and he said, like, why would you not do it? It's that there's nothing the offense can do about it. Even if you tell them you're going to do it, as long as you make it look like you might catch it, the, the runner at first can't go anywhere. So uh, it's like a perfect play. And, and it worked great if you want to get rid of a, a fast runner for a slow runner. And uh, it's still it doesn't happen often enough to really make a huge difference in terms of like runs you allow, but it's just like such a no-lose thing that I don't know why more teams don't do it.
0: Who was the infielder for the A's who let it drop on purpose?
1: Uh,
0: Allen. Nick Nick Allen. Nick Allen. Okay, because there was a game that the Isotopes played earlier this year against Las Vegas, which is the A's affiliate. And I'm trying to remember if Nick Allen was still there in Las Vegas or whether he was in, in the major leagues because it's the ninth inning. There's bases loaded. The Isotopes are down by one. There's an infield pop-up, infield fly rule. The first baseman was trying to catch the ball. Okay, He was trying to. He was not dropping it on purpose. But he missed it. And the Isotopes were under third base, forgot the rule. And he just starts jogging down from third to home, thinking that there's a force play. And he gets tagged out, and that's how the Isotopes lost the game.
1: Oh, my God. Well, I did, you know, as after this happened last night, I I, uh, was talking to one of the A's writers about it, and they said, oh, yeah, they worked on that all spring. Uh, so clearly anybody who was in the A's organization, not just in the major leagues would be down with this, but, but that particular case you're talking about is obviously something different.
0: So. I also remember Jerome Williams I remember Jerome Williams, right? His one of his first starts in the major leagues. I don't know if it was his major league debut or one of his early starts. It was in San Francisco and there was a bunt play and it wasn't that high enough for it to be an infield play role. And he let it drop on purpose and he started double play and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, a rookie this early <laughs> in his career has the wherewithal to let a butt drop on purpose to start a double play.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. You see that sometimes. And, you know, Andrelton Simmons used to do a lot where there was kind of like a a low soft liner to where you could either catch it or play it on a hop. And he would do that a lot to intentionally let it drop so he could get the double play. Andrelton Simmons was also like playing on another level from everybody else. <laughs>
0: All right, let's let's. um, I want to dive into a couple of what if scenarios since both of you have a lot of Bay Area ties. um, It's one of my favorite talking points in the press box, is um, with people with the A's and Moneyball, and this idea that Michael Lewis was the author of Moneyball. He was not a baseball writer he just showed up and I remember him telling me that he just kept showing up and he didn't realize that it was some ballsy thing that he just kept showing up. And that's how he got access in order to write this book and Billy Bean and Paul de Podesta and everyone, they liked him and they didn't feel threatened by him. And then it was not until later that Michael Lewis said, Oh yeah, this is too good for a magazine. I'm writing a, you know, this is a book and I've already got the book deal and blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of the things that Billy Bean believed in the whole money ball he got from Sandy Alderson, and Sandy Alderson was the exact opposite. He didn't want anyone to know about on-base percentage and some of the other different things that, that Sandy believed in before it became mainstream. So let's take this alternate universe where Billy Bean tells Michael Lewis, get out of here, you know, top secret stuff here. Um, and the book Moneyball never gets written. How long – Does the A's window of competitiveness with Hudson Mulder and Zito, who didn't get any credit in that book, continue longer? How much does that change the advantage the A's had before the rest of baseball figured it out?
1: I mean, I think that there there certainly would have been a little more time before the A's, uh, before other teams started doing the same thing with like the on-base percentage. But I, I don't think it would have really changed the A's success too much because I think still most of their success was built on, not that, but you know Hudson, Mulder, Zito, Chavez, Tejada, all those guys, and I don't think they would have had those guys any longer or uh, or anything like that. So uh, I think Moneyball was a great look at uh, a part of what they did, but I don't think it's like the biggest part of anything. And I even still today, I mean probably for the most part, there are not like Scott Haddebergs out there that are making bad teams, good teams. They're just like, that's how you're filling around the gaps. So uh, you can still probably make a good team based on the the traditional stuff of like, who looks like a really good baseball player from their regular stats, you know, and that's the most of making your team good. And obviously the way, the way that the fringes and stuff, that's different, but I don't think it would have really changed too much of history.
0: A, a part of history that might have changed, though, is I think it, it inspired a lot of people who were not working in baseball to work in baseball. And I think it opened the door for them. The number of interviews that I've read from people who have now been in baseball for 10 years, and they said, I read Moneyball, and that made me want to get into it. And I think that opened the minds of front offices, owners. Um, other GMs about bringing in people like Farhan Zahidi, you know, with Farhan's background, and welcoming them into their what previously was a very exclusive club.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I think that that it definitely opened up to uh, a lot of analytical thinking that probably wasn't there before. As you're sure it might have, it happened eventually, but certainly hastened the process and and led a lot of more different voices into baseball. Definitely.
0: What if Billy Bean takes the job with the Red Sox? How is history different?
1: I I don't think it is either because uh, the Red Sox just sort of started doing his thing without him, obviously. They still won the World Series a bunch of times. So uh, I think they just got his ideas. They didn't really need him as much. And the A's, even with his ideas, still had the same limitations budget-wise. So the A's haven't won a bunch of World Series because he stayed. And the Red Sox still won a bunch of World Series when he didn't go, so I, I'm not sure that that would have changed history. Well, this it is terrible. Billy's this is, bank account.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible radio or terrible podcasting, and <laughs> we're saying that nothing's different. You know, history's
1: hard to change. You know.
0: Well, okay, so Theo Epstein's life is different. Yeah. Okay, so Theo Epstein does not become the the architect of the Red Sox team that breaks the curse, and he therefore probably does not go to the Cubs and finally win a World Series with the Cubs. Right.
1: So there you go. If, if Billy Bean didn't take the Red Sox job, the Cubs wouldn't have won the World Series.
0: And then Paul DePodesta remains in Oakland instead of going to Los Angeles, in which case after two years when the Dodgers didn't like him, and then they hired Ned Colletti. So Ned Colletti does not become a general manager in Los Angeles if that happens.
1: And how about if uh, Theo Epstein doesn't go to the Cubs, Joe Madden never goes to the Cubs. So Joe Madden doesn't break the Cubs streak and then Joe Madden never manages the Angels, and then Shohei Otani never becomes a star two-way player.
0: See? Now <laughs> it comes full circle. That's Is that good podcasting? That is good podcasting, <laughs> and that's actually very accurate. That's not a leap. That's a that's a significant objective view of how history is different. Sure. But also, like, Billy Bean and uh, what's his name, the president there for the Red Sox, um, 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 uh, Lukino, those two guys would that would that would not have lasted very long. Those two yeah. guys are so similar type A personalities; they would have drove each other crazy. I don't know how long that would have lasted, but it would not have lasted very long. Yeah, I don't know if the Red Sox win the World Series. They probably do, but you never know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's you don't know, winning a World Series is really lots of you know ball goes foul here or there you don't win and all that kind of stuff can happen. That's that's weird. You know, those are the uh, just something that the. The Angels fans, first of all, feel like they're cursed all the time. And uh, one of the things that was brought up to me on Twitter just this week is, uh, do you remember Kendry's Morales? Oh, yeah. And uh, he hit a game-winning grand slam, and then he jumped onto home plate and blew out his knee and, like, missed, like, the whole rest of the season or something like that. And uh, his career was never the same after that. And uh, somebody pointed out to me, if that hadn't happened, the Angels might never have signed Albert Pujols. And that might never have sent them on this – path of getting all these big free agents at the expense of their farm system and maybe we wouldn't be in this this mess that they're in right now. So that's Ooh. a good like what if.
0: That if. is a good one. You know what I remember about that too is that after that there was all of this talk around baseball like oh you can't do that be careful with the celebrations and for like a week everyone was careful and then they went right back to doing what they have done ever since yes. and it just proved that was just a one-time fluky thing yes. with Kendrick's still
1: Brown. has not happened again.
0: So yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, Fletch. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Congratulations, my friend. I'm proud of you. Um, I'm glad that we've got to connect. Uh, I wish we could do it more often. And um, and once again, thanks for uh, your time and for this book.
1: All right. Thanks for having me, Susha. It's been great to talk to you.
0: That was Jeff Fletcher, and this is Life Around the Seams.